Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Human rights monitors talk of fact-finding missions and reports. Human rights facts are, like all social phenomena, not in fact found, but made through processes by which we come to know and talk about them. But how exactly does that happen? And how, by attending to these processes, might we arrive at a more robust understanding of human rights facts, not one that pulls the rug out from under claims about human rights abuses, but has a better appreciation for the complexities of human rights work and its forms of knowledge? These are the kinds of questions animating Ken McLean's new book, Crimes in Archival Form, Human Rights, Fact Production and Myanmar, published in 2022 by the University of California Press. Ken McLean is a professor at the Strasler Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies, Clark University in the United States. He'll be speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, an associate professor in the Department of Political and Social Change, Australian National University, and currently a senior fellow at the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy, University at Buffalo. Ken, congratulations on your new book, and thanks a lot for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about it. Thank you for the warm welcome, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to share my thoughts on these issues, and um, looking forward to the conversation to see where it takes us. Me too. So let me begin by asking you, why write a book about how human rights facts are produced, Ken? To be frank, I was kind of surprised when I began work on this topic that more had not been written on it. But in my view, technological developments and the astronomical levels of mistrust that characterize many countries today strikes me as an opportunity to think or to critically rethink, I should say, how human rights fact finders and human rights organizations that engage in advocacy do their work because they are fundamentally dealing in allegations. And to make their case, I think it's really critical to demonstrate transparency in how you go about doing your work and on what basis you make your alleged truth claims. Unfortunately, in my view, very few human rights NGOs actually do this and in an era increasingly characterized by misinformation, disinformation, deep fakes, arguments of false equivalency, and so on. If we don't do this preemptively, we are doing ourselves a disservice and certainly for the people we claim to be trying to protect or seek accountability for. Four. A underlying question to all of that might be, why me? Why should you listen to what I have to say? And in response to that, I would say I've been doing human rights fact-finding, documentation, and academic research on these processes for nearly 25 years. I've coordinated fact-finding teams, served as an outside organizational consultant, directed human rights organizations, carried out scholarly research in many different contexts. Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Tibet, different countries in Latin America, and of course, most deeply in Myanmar. So I've been intimately involved in these issues. And I think it's important to say complicit in engaging or carrying out the very practices I single out in the book for critical examination. And so even though I don't have a case study focused directly on my work per se, I draw upon those experiences and concerns to look at what I think is problematic about how we work and what, to a lesser extent, perhaps we should do to overcome that. Why is it that human rights organizations would be reluctant to communicate the manner in which they generate data and interpret that data for their audiences? Your suggestion is that in a way to their advantage to have a kind of critical yet empathetic approach to the epistemologies, if you like, of human rights fact production it seems as if there's an unwillingness to engage on the kinds of terms that you're advocating for, both as a practitioner and a scholar. Have I understood you correctly? And if so, what are the reasons for that? What I am trying to address is the yawning gap that exists between practitioners generally defined and academics 
practitioners, particularly those on frontline work, are constantly responding or working in crisis conditions. They're under-resourced. They're often certainly Global South organizations, generally speaking, don't have access or the training to engage with the kind of academic materials that I think are relevant to their work. And at the same time, scholars, generally speaking, have the luxury of time, access to resources, and so on that practitioners don't. And as a consequence, they have different preoccupations. They speak different languages, as it were, both in an epistemological sense, but also a methodological sense. And so there is, in my view, insufficient conversation, respectful, meaningful, and engaged conversation across these two communities. And as a result, the problems and the opportunities that members of each respective community are aware of often fail to be understood by the other. And that's why human rights organizations and the advocacy work they do tend to repeat the very same strategies they've been using for decades now, often to limited effect. And scholars find it easy to either criticize this work or are preoccupied with questions of international criminal law, discourse analysis, and so on, that is not always well connected to the preoccupations of fact finders. So it is my hope that this book prompts conversations as to why social theory is relevant for practitioners to be conversant in and why the on the ground realities that fact finders face are important for scholars in institutions of higher education to really understand, particularly if they themselves are not engaged or have personal experience with this kind of work. And as you said already, you've done work in recent years on and in Myanmar. What do you think there is about Myanmar as a site for human rights facts, production and dissemination that recommends itself for this inquiry? One of the things I struggled with was the extent to which Myanmar is unique or particularly rich in some way that other contexts might not be. And in, in what way is it actually representative and an excellent case study for thinking through how these issues are in play in other and sometimes very different contexts? And I think the answer to that is obviously both. But To give you a more specific answer, the conflicts in Myanmar are very long running, some of which extending back more than seven decades. And although there have been varying degrees of documentation, really around 1990, what I would say is the first generation of fact finding really began. And it's accumulated over time, hence my interest in archives. And I think we're looking at 35, almost 40. 40 years in some cases of really consistent and in some cases very high quality fact finding that gives us a very rich body of material to work with. And of course, large number of people who've been intimately involved in these processes. So there's material to work with, archival material broadly defined, and also I would say experts, even though there's often high turnover in human rights organizations, there are people like myself who've been doing this for decades, and they are great sources for understanding the issues they've grappled with over the years. I would also add that the widespread nature of the large number of conflicts that have been unfolding in Myanmar for decades. Some are very similar. They have the same causes effectively, and the conflict dynamics are much the same, and the strategy and tactics the different armed groups, state and non-state, are using are quite similar. But in other cases, they're quite different. In other words, there is a diversity of conflict dynamics and efforts to document them across Myanmar and across its borders that makes it, I think, a particularly rich case study uh, to look at in ways that other conflicts that are perhaps more focused, although not necessarily less complex. You know, it's good to think with, to use Levi Strauss's famous phrase, in a way that other cases may not be. I would agree with you. And yet the book is, for the most part, concentrated on fact production to do with the military offensive over the years of 
2005 to 2008 in the north of Karen State on the border of Thailand. So what happened there? And given that warfare and human rights abuses have been, as you were just alluding to, recurrent throughout Myanmar's modern history and the documentation is variegated, diverse, and now many decades old, why concentrate on the production of facts about this particular offensive over these years? My answer will be several fold. First, the book was written not just with country experts in mind, but my hope is for a much broader audience of people interested in human rights issues. And so I had to make some difficult decisions about context and complexity. It would have been easy to write a comparative study of fact-finding practices across different conflicts within the country, but I feared that would require actually a multi-volume set to include sufficient context to make it possible for someone not an expert on the country to follow. And that obviously was not what I wanted to do. So really focusing down on one conflict zone, particularly not, though not exclusively Northern Karen State, which is incredibly well documented, made sense because I could streamline the argument and where possible point out what is unique to this area and what is not unique and relevant for other conflict zones across the country and by extension, hopefully, other conflict zones around the world. The next decision I had to make was how to link the different chapters. It would have been easy, for example, to focus on different fact-finding processes that occurred at different moments or across different periods in this part of Myanmar, but they wouldn't have necessarily held together. So I made the choice to anchor the abuses themselves around the internationally recognized category of crimes against humanity, which has a clear definition, which has a clear threshold in international law, because each of the chapters, which features a different fact-finding approach and a different violation like forced labor, which is a contemporary form of slavery, destruction of civilian food sources as a weapon of, in this case, counterinsurgency, summary executions, and so on. Those are all examples of what falls under the heading of crimes against humanity. So there was a common metric, if you will. Furthermore, the Northern Offensive was both singular in some ways and representative of others in the Myanmar context. Many of the traditional so-called counterinsurgency strategies used against Karen civilians in this area were similar to those that have been used elsewhere in the country also for decades. But the scale and duration and year-round nature of the attack, which lasted almost three years in some places, really made it unusual and worth looking at because of the intensity of the violence. One of the characteristic features of Myanmar is the low-intensity nature of the violence, certainly compared to a place like Syria. Looking at how those unfolded across a period of several years, to understand how fact-finding processes did and did not change over that period seemed to me really important. One of the things I really like about how you've organized the chapters, Ken, is the way that you're engaging with and destabilizing fact-making practices by attending to how different organizations and associations have played parts in human rights fact production. But as you were just saying, you don't go about it by telling a generational story, although it is partly a generational story, but by attending to how facts are produced through the use of verbatim record-keeping, enumeration, transcription of narratives, the use of citations. And we'll touch on some of these methods in the discussion. Foremost among the groups that you identify as being responsible for the abundance of documentation that you were alluding to a moment ago about conditions in the north of Karen State is the Karen Human Rights Group. Tell us a little bit about that group and the emergence and transformation of what you call an unintended archive of human rights facts into an intentional one. I'm delighted to do so. I am, in many respects, in awe of the work 
Karen Human Rights Group, or KHRG, has done for many decades now. And that work has been recognized around the world through many awards, including two nominations for the Nobel Peace Prize. They really devote almost all of their energy to frontline work in extremely dangerous circumstances. And they've done a tremendous amount in terms of educating and training ordinary Karen to understand what their rights are internationally and in theory domestically, how to go about human rights documentation, and thus involve people in an effort, one that has extended for many decades. And what I'm trying to say here is they don't parachute in like so many human rights groups do, and especially human rights fact-finding missions organized by the UN and other bodies. They are deeply involved and have long-term relationships with communities that has enabled trust and commitment and I think a degree of transparency and by extension quality of fact-finding that you really don't find anywhere else in the country. They have also been deeply committed to keeping or creating an organization that was Karen managed and run. And even though it was founded by a foreigner over a period of years that through concerted capacity building, it became, I believe, in 2007, an all-Karen organization. I think that speaks volumes about the importance of ownership. All too many of the human rights organizations working in Myanmar, but obviously elsewhere, are run by foreigners who are paid relatively well and enjoy working and living conditions that the local staff do not. And generally speaking, they do not run the risks. They are not in conflict areas. And so there's sort of a structural inequality in many human rights organizations KHRG successfully avoided that. And as a result, they're able to both work in places and to collect information in ways that other human rights NGOs that are a little more distant, if you will, from the conflicts they are documenting. So you get more detailed, more sustained, and over time, a longer documentary record, if you will. Why does this matter? In the KHRG case, the chapter focuses on forced labor, and really one of the first issues the organization began working on was exactly that. So if you want to sort of trace the organization and this development over time through a particular crime against humanity, forced labor really presents itself as the obvious choice. And the reason why I called it an unintentional archive was that they did not set out to create an archive. Rather, they were responding to unbelievable levels of forced labor and conflict zones that primarily affected civilians, but later prisoners from prisons around the country who were forced to border in conflict zones. And a lot of the work was either spot reporting, this is what's happening in this district, this is what's happening in that district, and later more coherent, targeted, lengthier field-based research reports for advocacy purposes in connection with the ILO, the International Labor Organization's efforts to eradicate forced labor. So what you had over time is the accumulation of these orders reports that contain hundreds and hundreds of written forced labor orders from military personnel to village headmen who then had to mobilize people to carry out an astonishingly wide range of tasks for free for the military. And it's a reminder to me and hopefully to the readers that archives in general rarely emerge ex nihilo, that they have biographies. And those life histories matter in terms of understanding the collection protocols, information management, access provisions, and so on. That these elements and that, you know, sort of the evolution over time or the trajectory of these archives shapes not only what an archive contains, but importantly, what kinds of questions can be asked about the records in them, what kinds of stories can be told about them, and what all of this, what answers to these, these and other questions, what impact or effect they have for our ability to write history more generally. There's a related point that emerges out of that, which goes to a term that's critical for you in this chapter that I alluded to a moment ago, and that is verbatim. Explain verbatim to us, and why is it that the KHRG records are interesting in engaging with this notion of verbatim? What does or doesn't constitute verbatim evidence? Let me put it this way. Verbatim in its simplest form, or you know, the etymological origins of the term, is to quote. 
to repeat without unchanging, to to bracket and, and accurately reproduce what was said or written or represented in some way by another. But verbatim is, for me, one of the key ways in which human rights NGOs seek to establish their credibility. And quotes, direct quotes, is a key way they do this. They said this. We didn't. We're simply reproducing and reporting what victims or witnesses to an act of violence saw and what conclusions should we draw from them. So this is a central example of fact-finding, that somehow these facts exist objectively out there. And the human rights organization's decision to focus on issue X, to use methodology Y to investigate it, you know, the sampling, where, how they pose their questions and so on, how they analyze the data, it somehow does not change or affect what was said because it hides the context in which the verbatim itself was produced. And it is a kind of repetition that some people have referred to as stockpiling, that the accumulation of quote after quote of verbatim statement after verbatim statement about violation X helps provide the conceptual basis of saying these are not individual incidents, but they're also indicative of a broader pattern. And proving a pattern is critical to supporting claims of crimes against humanity, which has the requirement that it either be widespread or systematic or both. So I think it's really important to understand why the accurate reproduction or representation of statements by victims and witnesses is critical, but also that transparency is needed to understand how that chain of evidence or fact production does and does not shape these verbatim statements along the process, which generally concludes in recommendations in which the NGO is calling on different members of the international community to take steps one, two, three in light of these violations. They're trying to convince policymakers to take a particular kind of action, but they're also trying to convince the audience reading their reports more generally. And we need to be aware of the conventions used in order to shape our own understandings or how we understand what is happening in a particular place. And I'm not saying we should totally dismiss these reports and the work that goes into producing them and the advocacy that follows from them. But I'm saying skepticism and critical evaluation is really needed. And here is a central example why. For a long time, the International Criminal Court and other human rights bodies routinely utilized information and human rights reports as part of their own deliberations and decision-making processes about what should be done in response to mass human rights violations. But they too, although not necessarily in the language I'm using in the book have begun to say, well, on what basis should we accept these claims? Because the job of an advocacy organization is essentially persuasion. And what is the evidence base upon which they are making these claims? And so the recent ICC courts, according to people I've spoken to at the office of the prosecutor there, have stated that they've become much more hesitant to accept NGO reports at face value. The standards by which these organizations operate needs to, to a certain extent, professionalize, or if not professionalize, if their goal is to have a legal impact, recognize that there are certain norms and requirements that they now have to follow. I would like to come back to this, but I'd like to do it once we've heard a bit more from you about the other groups and documentation activities that you were researching. And among those are humanitarian relief groups working on much the same ground as KHRG to produce facts to obtain and sustain support for their operations and ascertain where and how they ought to distribute relief and in what quantities and so on. So how do their practices differ from the KHRGs and why? I thought it was really important to begin with to feature different fact-finding organizations, one that is without a doubt, first and foremost, a human rights group like KHRG, humanitarian groups, because many of them, certainly the two I featured, 
do human rights fact-finding as a ancillary part or a supporting part of their humanitarian work. There's also a chapter on a law clinic and another chapter on sort of a loose transnational multi-NGO campaign. In the case of the humanitarian organizations, I became really interested in numbers. The internal field reports, these organizations produced to the international funder of the consortium as a way of convincing them of the scale of the need in a conflict-affected area that IDPs or internally displaced persons for an urgent need of this amount of money to purchase food to sustain them for uh, three months or what have you, really relied heavily on numbers. And that is true of human rights documentation more generally. Quantification lends quite obviously a scientific character to the reports, a sense of definitiveness, a sense of scale. It is easily digestible in a way that lengthy interview transcripts are not. And so it has a particular appeal to policymakers. But anyone who's looked at the critical scholarship on numbers or quantification knows numbers carry a whole range of problems of their own. And here's just one simple example. Statistics often take on lives of their own. They circulate once produced and they are routinely cited as justification for policy actions. But we frequently do not know where those numbers came from and how they were produced. And here I'm thinking of human trafficking figures as perhaps the most classic example. These figures, because they are attached to such an emotional issue, tend to bypass the analytical part of our brains and speak to the effective part. And as a result, we are seduced or can be easily seduced by numbers when in fact they have no evidentiary basis. So in this chapter, I'm really looking at fact production in the sense of how can evidence in quotation marks documented in the midst of often active conflict zones be packaged in a way that decision makers a couple hundred miles away can assess and determine whether it meets the evidentiary thresholds in which to grant significant amounts of money to distribute to IDPs and the ways in which this information was then repackaged for international audiences, first and foremost for funders of the consortium, but also to policymakers and larger human rights organizations. So we were looking, or I was looking at, I should say, the ways in which numbers were produced and transfigured and repackaged and represented visually as well as numerically. What are specific estimates and how do they feature in this part of the work? I'm really fond of the term. I don't know whether it'll have any legs and other people will pick it up. But one of the common things you see in human rights reports are highly specific numbers. So in the case of Myanmar reports on IDPs, internally displaced persons, you will often see a number like 53,761. And the very specificity or preciseness of that number obviously begs the question, how did they get to that number? Did they actually physically locate that number of people and count them up and arrive at that precise figure? Was it an extrapolation? Was it based on the rough headcounts that village headmen maintained in their villages? So when they say our village was attacked and everyone left, that meant 3,033 people from my village went somewhere. And then you just add it all up and you get that precise number. You know, what I was trying to do is think through there, again, as part of this chapter on numbers, how specificity works and in what ways it becomes persuasive in the way the number, the general number of 700,000 might not be. And the illusion of preciseness as being somehow more effective in telling or supporting a truth claim about what happened in a conflict zone. It was simply, I think, a very small example in a much larger discussion about numbers, whether I can develop that idea more broadly. I'll give it some thought. It was just sort of a, an aside in the text itself. Well, it caught my eye and we've just discussed it. So hopefully we'll have directed some readers of the book towards it. The 
latter part of the book you've already mentioned alludes to the practices of organizations doing advocacy and legal work in international fora. You mentioned the legal clinic at Harvard specifically and a more nebulous transnational campaign that involved the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar aiming to get the UN Security Council to act both to a greater or lesser extent concerned with the kinds of evidentiary requirements that you were alluding to a moment ago and also engaged in advocacy work. And the practices that you concentrate on here are narrativity and citations. Now, narratives, narrativity, the use of testimony would seem to me at least to be something that is self-evidently important in the kind of work that you're documenting. And yet you say there's been a lack of attention to how narrative does its work in human rights production. Why is that the case? And how do you think your work is a corrective? Narrativity is immensely important, especially where the issue of transparency comes into the conversation. You have multiple layers. First and most obviously, you have what the people who were interviewed, they actually said. And this sort of harkens back to the question of verbatim and how do we know what they said and what NGOs then say about what people said. And of course, the third level, which you could throw into the mix, is what do then policymakers or other decision makers say about what the NGOs said, who then said what they said about what the people or victims and witnesses said. So you get these chains when you stop to think about it and then say, how do we know who is speaking and who is speaking for whom and on what basis? And is it representative of what the people themselves said or want and so on? This is not simply meant to be an exercise of deconstruction, but rather to point to the fact that human rights reports, you almost never, I can hardly think of examples where the interview transcripts are reproduced for people to read them, even in redacted form to protect the identities of the informants and the fact finders themselves. It's almost unheard of. So we have to, as sort of the first leap of faith, believe that the human rights organization is accurately representing or summing up the views of all the people they interviewed, and they don't always disclose how many people were interviewed, who they were, what relationship did they have to the violence being documented and so on and so forth. So it's really, in many cases, a black box. Then you have this other issue that I explore in one of the chapters at at greater length, and that is because we don't have access in most cases to these transcripts, we don't know whether the informant is speaking as a firsthand victim or a secondhand witness or is sharing what is actually what would be called in a court of law hearsay and how their subject position or relationship to fact production changes over the course of the interview and sometimes in the very same sentence. And you see this even more fundamentally to push this point even further. When you're dealing with issues of trauma, For anyone who's ever conducted an interview with someone who's been traumatized by an encounter with violence, it is almost always fragmented, nonlinear. It is very difficult to make sense of the person's experience because they often struggle to find the words to convey what they experienced. These statements are actually, in almost all cases, edited. They're made into coherent sentences that follow in logical order, that present a more coherent picture of what allegedly happened. And I'm not saying that human rights NGOs are doing this unethically, but rather it is important to note that this practice happens and what you're seeing presented as a verbatim quote may or may not actually be a verbatim quote. It may have been edited for the consumption by specific audiences. And these interventions are not inherently bad or disqualifying, I would add, but they do need to be accounted for because what you're reading is not collected. It's not simply found. It is, again, produced in some way. So from a practitioner's point of view, what would you recommend if we could move to that mode momentarily? Because if a survivor of state 
violence or non-state armed groups violence in some cases may have told a story that can be rendered coherent through precisely the kind of work that you've just alluded to? Is it then just a question of documenting the methods that we use, the processes by which that occurred, or is something more called for? I think one of the central shortcomings of the book, perhaps, is that I did not devote more attention to, well, in light of all this, what should we do? On the other hand, I didn't feel comfortable being prescriptive because conflict contexts can be so diverse that that diversity or heterogeneity, I don't want to be lost by saying, here are the six best practices that every human rights NGO needs to adopt to overcome this problem. I don't think best practices per se are the solution. I think they're helpful to think with, but I wouldn't say they should be slavishly followed. I would have two answers to the question. The first is, as an initial step, I think that perhaps in the form of an annex or an appendix, human rights groups really need to take more seriously a disclosure of their methodology. I have seen reports, or I know of reports, that made very strong claims of, for example, crimes against humanity that were based on 10 interviews. And that is not necessarily a rich enough, comprehensive enough evidentiary basis to make claims of widespread and systematic violence by state actors against civilians. So I think not only talking about what your data sources were, but how you went about choosing them. What methods did you use? What kinds of analysis were they subjected to and so forth? Uh, The humanitarian organizations that I feature in one of the chapters of the book and the International Consortium of which they are members has done a excellent job, particularly with regard to their survey methodologies and talking about their multi-cluster sampling and how they did X, Y, and Z and divided up different conflict zones that have different characteristics to compare and contrast outcomes on civilians across them. And that kind of quantification, while not necessarily without problems of their own, as I mentioned earlier, really goes a long way for helping the reader to understand, okay, this is how they went about their fact-finding, if you will, and this is how they assess the information to produce these particular results. And that would also mean that human rights organizations need to have greater familiarity with the pros and cons of different research methodologies. So this is an opportunity, I think, where scholars and experts in these kinds of things, be they surveys or oral histories or semi-structured interviews or using digital evidence and verification of various kinds, can do more to assist people on the front lines. The second thing, which is not new per se, but is being increasingly called for at the ICC, certain UN bodies and so on, is access to more of the raw data. This is not without its own issues of informant protection. A classic example and one that will become increasingly common is, well, once you've entered in the raw data to the UN, for example, or the ICC, if it goes to a case, it becomes part of the case file, which means the defense in theory, will have access to the raw data, which would include things often like names or locations, if they're not carefully redacted, that would make certain people or populations vulnerable to retaliation. How you handle that is a big legal and ethical issue that people are talking about, but I don't know that they come to any sort of decision on how to address that moving forward. All of these questions, all these observations are incredibly pertinent given the current situation in Myanmar. If we can return to the site of your research, the book was, of course, researched and written prior to the military coup in February 2021 that prevented the semi-civilian legislature from reforming after the election of the year before that was won by the National League for Democracy. 
a lot has happened in this last year or two. For one thing, state terrorism is back with a vengeance in practice and in the vernacular as well. You talk about it in your book as being a somewhat neglected category for description and interpretation for scholars of Myanmar, but I don't think that's any longer the case. There's also a whole array of new data being generated, some of which goes to what you were raising earlier on about how perpetrators are speaking for themselves, now in the form of defectors coming to the areas controlled by armed groups that are against the military regime, others who are crossing the borders into Thailand or India, bringing video evidence with them from telephones of atrocities. So I'd be really interested to hear from you about what you would say the most relevant, most urgent contents of the book are for anyone trying to get a sense of how human rights fact production is part of the struggle to resist research and military rule. How do you see your book contributing to our thinking on Myanmar specifically at this time? Great question. And it's hard to answer in some respects because there's so much happening. You know, if you're following this closely, the volume and speed with which information is coming out really exceeds our ability to verify and analyze it in any systematic way at this point. But I wanted to pick up one point before I return to the, the broader uh, thrust of your question, and that is that there is or there has been historically very little effort to document and to try and hold non-state armed groups accountable for the human rights abuses they themselves have committed. And I'd say it is also very easy to overlook or ignore the abuses, the self-defense forces and other nebulous armed groups are committing by, for example, assassinating alleged collaborators with the regime without due process of law. And it's easy to justify that in light of the situation saying, well, given the disproportionate relationship of the violence of one group against another, we really shouldn't put too much energy into that at this point. They're more pressing concerns. But I would say it's important to remember that human rights violations are human rights violations, and that if your goal is accountability, then there must be accountability for everyone who commits summary executions, for example, or engages in torture and what have you. So it is my hope that these violations are not lost in the effort to document state accountability for what is happening. Uh, the fire hose effect that I mentioned, really, if you are trying to keep up with this, it's like trying to make the proverbial drink out of the fire hose. And I'd point out that the, you know, the independent monitoring mechanism that the UN is managing is really one effort to take a drink out of this fire hose. And given access issues, its researchers are devoting significant resources to the collection analysis of digital information, social media being one example. And they're certainly not the first to do this. For me, the leading example over the last five, 10 years is the Syria archive, which was really a pathbreaker in trying to collect as much information as possible from diverse sources to create a developing case file in the hopes of holding Syrian actors legally accountable at some point in the future should that become possible. They've worked with the Duke University Law School to create documentation systems that would meet international criminal requirements and so on. Uh, they've been at the forefront of developing databases to manage interviews, photographs, film clips, tweets, social media posts, and so on, into a archive that can be used strategically for these purposes. Another important development are the Berkeley Protocols, based on the uh, insights and recommendations of people involved in digital documentation primarily about what should be done for data collection, verification, authentication, chain of custody requirements, and so on, ethical practices, security practices. And I think that's really helpful. Now, the extent to which the Syria archive as one example, or the Berkeley protocols as another example, are informing the work the uh, monitoring mechanism is doing right now, I can't really say. But I think that the book itself offers a lot of food for thought for those interested in these issues, whether it's verbatim, citation practices, 
Englishing of transcripts. Uh, the book does not really go in any depth about digital technologies. If I was to rewrite it or if there was a second edition at some point, I would certainly add those, but they were not critical to what was happening in 2005 and 2008 and the time periods that bracket that from the early 90s to about 2014, 2015 when the book ends. Your discussion here, especially turning on the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar, brings us in some ways back to the points that you were raising earlier about the evidentiary standards that are required for certain types of legal interventions, the admissibility requirements that advocacy groups may not be able to meet. And the IIMM in some ways, I gather, is designed to deal with precisely those issues. But as you know, there are some scholars, and here I'm thinking of work by people like Karen Engel, who have criticized what they call um, a prosecutorial turn in human rights advocacy and action, by which they mean that there is a tendency to look towards these kinds of standards and requirements and meet them in order to open up the possibilities for prosecution in subsequent years of perpetrators. And from that point of view, then accountability is realized and impunity is to some extent redressed. And the concern that they have, as I understand it, is that this orientation results in the human rights movement overall being impoverished and arguably even irrelevant from a political point of view. Reading your book, it struck me that the story you seem to be telling was in support of this view that there is a trend towards all kinds of anti-impunity measures and the production of human rights facts that support or enable that project meet those standards of proof. Would you agree? And if so, what are the implications for our knowledge about human rights conditions in Myanmar? And also, uh, if you like, please speak to the human rights project at large. You know, I think it would be easy for some or possible for some to read my book as a critique of the human rights project and its you know its shortcomings are such that it needs to be radically rethought. I don't feel that to be a, an accurate reading of the book and I fully support efforts to hold perpetrators legally accountable for their crimes where they're proven. And in that sense, you know, I do think it's really important for human rights NGOs that see themselves as contributing to these efforts, that they need to understand what qualifies as evidence in the legal context and what kinds of documentation are needed for it to be admitted as such, be it timestamps, chain of custody, provenance, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, I agree with the critiques that one of the great limitations, or I should say, I'll be even stronger here and say failures of the international human rights movement is that it has been successfully colonized by law and that the ethical issues related to human rights and human rights philosophy and human rights as a political project have been marginalized to the point that they are in many cases seen as almost irrelevant. And I think, you know, the word you used is great. It impoverishes our understanding of human rights and the possibilities of promoting and creating conditions in which greater numbers of people can enjoy the rights they have been promised or deserve can, can be realized. And the legal issue for me has really narrowed down what kinds of abuses get focused on. And those usually fall under what are called negative rights, and those being civil and political liberties, protections from the state, from the commission of torture, for example, or summary execution, forced deportation. And what was never really strong, but has become even further marginalized, are positive rights, rights to housing, rights to food, rights to education, and so on. And as a result, we don't really have any good mechanisms, legal or otherwise, to pursue what often falls under the heading of structural violence. And we don't really have ways to hold leaders accountable, criminally or otherwise, for their failure to ensure economic, social, and cultural rights uh, to covenants that they've ratified. Furthermore, there are all kinds of approaches to 
justice and accountability that are not reducible to legal means. You know, be they truth and justice commissions, be they forms of compensation, acknowledgement, and so on that may be seen by certain sectors as inadequate from a you know impunity point of view, but they may in fact be exactly what the affected communities they themselves want. And I think more work needs to be done in taking these alternate approaches into consideration. In a couple of your answers in the last few minutes, you've alluded to the need for more work to be done. Is that going to be work that you yourself will be involved in, Ken? What's next for you? I've already, uh, you know, I'm working on a couple article manuscripts that really pick up this question of digital evidence and uh, legal admissibility, not because I think that is the only way to go, but I think there's some very interesting questions about digital platforms, not just a social media post um, or a photograph or a video clip, but efforts by forensic architecture, for example, to weave those together to create an interactive digital platform that can present and call up, can actually query different forms of digital evidence that had been emitted by the court for probative purposes, not just contextual purposes, which happened in the Mali case at the ICC level, but can really be used by the prosecution and by extension, the defense to make an argument as to why the accused is guilty. So for me, again, the epistemological, methodological and ethical questions about how facts, be they in quotation marks or facts uh, without them, are mobilized to make certain arguments is really important. And by extension, I could see a side project beyond Myanmar that takes a really close look at the Syria archive. What will happen, of course, with the fact production going on now since the coup and what the IIMM is doing also offers rich opportunities for very much needed research and reflection. Um, Where I will end up on that uh, remains to be seen. And you've published books now on both Vietnam and Myanmar. Any plans to move to another part of mainland Southeast Asia or even the maritime parts? (laughs) Well, I did a short-term exploratory project in Cambodia this summer working in the Khmer Rouge archives, looking at Vietnamese victims of torture and execution and trying to think through how we can use confessions obtained either with the threat of torture or, in this case, use of torture as historical sources. You know, the real legal constraints, as you well know yourself, in what kinds of information can be used for evidentiary purposes where torture is concerned. So I have gone through nearly 100 confessions and was gifted with 45,000 pages of court testimony from someone on the defense team. So I think I'll be spending the next couple months working through all that, figuring out what I'm going to do with it. But I think uh, I will be continuing to work on Myanmar for many more years, unfortunately. I think you should say fortunately, because it's tremendous that we have had the opportunity to learn from you about the methods, methodologies, politics, and epistemologies of fact production on human rights of the sort that you've outlined to us today. So Ken McLean, thank you so much for speaking to me about crimes in archival form, human rights, fact production, and Myanmar. Thank you. I've been delighted to share my thoughts and thank you for the kind closing remarks and I hope I can live up to them. And listeners, if you were stimulated by this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, then you might find other episodes on the channel interesting too, like Lynette Chua talking about the politics of love in Myanmar, LGBT mobilization and human rights as a way of life, or Tyrul Habakorn on her book, In Plain Sight, Impunity and Human Rights in Thailand. And if you go way back in the archives, you might even find Ken and I talking about the government of mistrust, illegibility and bureaucratic power in socialist Vietnam. These are just a few of the thousands of interviews available to you on almost every conceivable topic and book via the New Books Network website or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. 